0: So one of the biggest things I noticed this week, because due to this show, I really notice credits now a lot, and both of these episodes are written by 50 people each, and everything you tell me about the chaos in the writer's room at Voyager, like, this, <laughs> it's bleeding into the credits. I, 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 the, the first, Dragon's Teeth in particular feels like a too many cooks situation with it and there is some unevenness to one small step which i otherwise liked
1: yeah i mean i i actually like both of these episodes quite a bit i think that they're both very confident and mm-hmm. you know there's nothing revelatory about either one of them although i think one small step is is a little more um interesting than than dragon's teeth but you're right. Like, I don't know necessarily what goes into having so many credited writers on an episode of television. The one f- I think certainly sometimes like it, what happens is that, you know, cause we've talked about this before, right? Like writers rooms generally work like this. You've got a writing staff on a television series. They sit in a room, they break stories and then they just yeah. assign those stories out to particular writers to write a draft. Um, I don't know what was going on with these episodes, to be honest with you. I don't know why they have so many writers. I mean, there's something like for the
0: second episode, for example, the credits are written as Mike Wolliger, ampersand Jessica Scott, and Brian Fuller, ampersand Michael Taylor. And I think that's something like Wolliger and Scott worked together on a part, and Fuller and Taylor worked together on another part. and, And the story was by Wolliger and Scott, so I wonder if that means that you know, Williger and Scott gave us an episode, and then the other two had to do heavy rewrites or script stripped-out part and put in a B-plot or something. But, I mean, it seems like those kind of things are going on, that we have, all right, well, one, one person's writing Neelix's plot through the other, and the other is dealing with the anomaly and what we're do- what, how to fix that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, this is actually one of the most interesting parts of this series of books called "These Are the Voyages," which came out a few years ago. Um, I don't remember the the name of the person who wrote them, unfortunately, but they're essentially three very long textbook style yeah. um, books examining the the first three, well, the only three seasons of the original series. And and one of the things they talk about is a sort of like writing pre production process and how I'm I'm assuming it's still like this that so many of these issues are governed by the Writers Guild of America, mm. and there is a um, there is a process, a, a formal grievance process, to decide if there is some sort of disagreement about who exactly is going to be credited yeah. as a writer versus a story, et cetera, on an episode of television. So I don't, I mean, I have no inside knowledge as to whether or not that happened on these two episodes, but. It it is I, I think a lot of times it is seen as um not a good sign because the writing yeah. process if you have this many cooks in the kitchen credited on an episode means that there were a lot of substantial Uh, changes that each of these writers made like a lot of times a showrunner or someone else will do an uncredited rewrite of an episode you know Gene Roddenberry did that a lot for example for for the original series but he didn't get credited because he didn't make enough changes to it whereas these these writers on these episodes made enough changes to these episodes to get credited so it indicates that perhaps the writing process as you said was not very
0: smooth yeah um I, so Dragon's Teeth is tr- giving us the sixth season big bad, at least in its ending. I don't know if we'll ever see these again. I don't trust Voyager to <laughs> make good on its promises, because it really does seem like, alright, this is the season's heroion or Malon, or, you know, whatever the fuck, uh, Kazon.
1: Do you really need to ask that question, Richard? I
0: do, because, you know, it, I'm like fucking Charlie Brown with the football here. It's it, it, All right, this time we're actually going to give you... Because we've had season four, which I felt was a very cohesive season, and... It's not ridiculous to say that, yes, maybe Brandon Braga really wants to tell a story about space Nazis and that kind of a thing. And so he's going to spread that over for four episodes of the season. Like, that's not a ridiculous thing to hope for, in a way. It's not...
1: Yeah, sure. I, I mean part of what makes dragon's teeth so interesting to me is that, um, as I read on memory alpha, originally they wanted this to be a two parter Mm. and they decided in the writing process that they wanted it to be a single episode because they didn't have enough story or whatever. And then late in the episodes conception and writing, they, they decided that, no, it was a good idea to have it as a two parter, but it was too late to do anything about it, which is kind of why the episode just kind of peters out and doesn't really have much of an ending. I think, um, yeah, like, we have been down this road so much with Star Trek Voyager, though, like you said. I mean, you rattled off the, the aliens, right? I mean, the Kazon, the Malon, uh, uh, the Hirogens, the, Hirogen, the GZ-472, the Borg, the Vidians, right? I mean, there's a lot of examples of alien threats that have been in the show. I mean, two two... Oh voyager's credit i think this criticism is a little unfounded because the show is built on forward momentum and forward movement and so they're just not going to hang around as long as if this was tng but i could also Um,
0: see that again the buffy model all right this season is all about the malon and again we peppered the season with that and we just assume they're in malon space for their entire time the malons have a lot of space or whatever you know, I sure, I, I, sure. I it's loose enough that I can buy that kind of a hand wave and then all right, well, we're in season 6 now and they're far out of Malon territory and what are they dealing with now? It's something that could be sure. done.
1: Sure. But but I don't I don't find the Vodwark to, to be super interesting, yeah. right? Like I don't I don't think that this is a this feels in a lot of ways like a very standard sort of Star Trek plot where Aliens are here. They say one thing. Starfleet is going to take them at their word in good faith because that's what Starfleet does. And then the aliens stab them in the back and they fly off and say, well, that didn't work out, but we're still not going to stop being who we are. And, yeah, it's fine. I mean, I'm glad that Voyager is doing that type of episode. And there's a lot of this episode that I like um, and I will talk about that. But I don't I don't necessarily I'm not upset. If the vadwar never reappear, if you know what I mean,
0: in a way, it's almost quaid because this is not what space Nazis are, right? Like that, that i it, 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 it's a group of you know thirty sh- or a tiny amount of ships that's going to really try and you know bring you know harass everybody is just I don't know I, I I don't even remember their name I don't really find interest in them as a species It just seems like another attempt to do a because that's been the real problem with all of these alien species on Voyager is that none of them have really had enough media of a concept to draw out and become a cool, recognizable villain. And they give up on it halfway through, and so it just – I like I, – the show is better off at the one-offs than it is about the recurrers.
1: I mean yes, but I also don't know that that's necessarily a valid criticism of this particular episode no. because the vaudoir are not recurring. But but, and- but
0: because they but and then that then it makes it dumb that they make such a big deal about the fact that they're going to be back. You know, oh, I think that's the first we're seeing those. What we we you you,
1: you. I. I mean, I don't disagree with you, but I think at this point, I mean, we are halfway through the second to last episode of Star Trek Voyager, and so I take that sort of thing as more of a writerly attempt to mm. put something in there down the line if they want to go back to the War, Yeah. Not that they are going to go back to the War if you know what I mean. like. I really don't take anything that this show says seriously anymore. And
0: And isn't that a problem? Is that
1: a pro- is that a problem? Yeah. Yes, of course it's a problem, but that's where we are, right?
0: I mean, yeah, it, our, our project is certainly to see where the flaws in Voyager and that's I think one of the the, the big things. I can't take its promises seriously. It says it's going to be there. It says it's going to come to my baseball game, but it's never there, you know? That that's Voyager.
1: But I also think that, like, the I mean, I will, I like this episode though, because leaving aside all of the unfulfilled promises that we have seen so many times before with other alien species on this show, um, the Vodwar themselves are not super interesting. Yeah. But on an individual level, the the one main Vodwar guy, Gedron, that we know, he seems like a cool guy. Like, I'd like to hang out with Neelix and him in the mess hall and have a cup of coffee. Like, it sounds like they'd have a fun time. Um, And I also like how, one of the things that I really like about this episode, I mean, I'm a sucker for linguistic stuff, and Mm. I like the little detail that Vodwar means something in the Talax language, for instance, that this is is an alien species that, you know, if you're going to do this kind of bog standard Star Trek story, at least have some kind of interesting hook on it. Yeah, And I think that this is the type of episode that really benefits from Voyager's Just pile a lot of shit on top of each other approach to plotting because the Vodwar are an alien species that went into hibernation were like bombed like 900 years ago and they are awakened by the Voyager crew accidentally by seven and that is of course a part of this episode. And then they talk to Neelix, and then they find out that they're not actually what they appear, and they've got these like tunnels that they were using. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on with the Vodwar. And I think that little details like the fact that Vodwar means foolish in the Talaxian language or the old Talax tongue or whatever the hell Neelix says is is a nice little detail and, and adds a little bit of flavor to an alien species that otherwise would have been unremarkable.
0: Yeah, it's the same kind of drift that, like, Nazis does not necessarily mean a particular political party during a particular time and place, but just heartless conservative. Yeah, I like that kind of linguistic drift. Um, I mean, a thing that – and I love – Neelix is my favorite part of this episode. He usually is my favorite part of the episodes, but – I like him in this,
1: oh God, get ready for comments
0: <laughs> um, I really do like him in this, and I really love the scene with Naomi Wildman, where it is very you know Neelix does tread that really interesting line between, well, here's a little girl who's just probably scared of somebody strange, and he is trying to talk her down, but when she's insisting, listen, I don't like them, he respects her and listens to th- her and figures, well, she must have a reason. Let me just double check and make sure everything's okay. I mean, that's a they're giving that to the littlest member of the crew, right? Like that's sweet.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is sweet and I think that yeah, Neelix is really good in this episode and I like his little research adventure very much. I like the the scene with Naomi Wildman that you just talked about very much. You know, I think in a lot of ways Neelix is the the glue that is yeah. holding voyager together at this point and i don't know how or why but he is one of the most consistent characters on the show and you know voyager has this reputation amongst fans as being the janeway seven of nine doctor show and yeah i don't actually see a lot of evidence for that you know certainly seven of nine is a large part of the show certainly the doctor is a large part of the show but i actually think that neelix gets a lot of uh development and screen time for a character that people don't like or seem to forget and seem to forget exists and he is a very very good part of this episode
0: yeah i mean he is the heart of the series i think i said this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Harry Kim, like they're trying to make Harry Kim seem like he is the heart that thinks the good in everybody, but that was already Neelix, and again, the closest thing the ship has to a counselor, and it's really interesting to see him in a situation where he wants to think the good in everybody, he sees a bunch of people who are outsiders, whose uh, culture is all but gone, I mean, he sees a different iteration of Talax in these people, at first at least because they are the last survivors of an all but destroyed civilization that's who neelix is yeah and
1: yeah that's a really good point yeah Yeah. and of
0: course he wants to make sure and of course he can i mean the episode does recognize that there are individuals who are good i mean the main one seems to recognize that listen at this point it doesn't even matter what we want we have nothing. The you know, if they are giving us a planet where we can live, that is like the fucking lottery right now. Because th- th- what are our other options? You are. It's a suicide mission to do this. What I think is really interesting about this episode, and what I do like, is it's a it's weirdly an epilogue. This is oh, very similar to what the Cardassian ending of DS Nine is is right like. Cardassia yeah. ends decimated, it's destroyed, there's only a small amount of surviving Cardassians out, they have to rebuild, and we are left in DS9 with the very strong hope that, yes, there is going to be a reckoning, that this, that this is it, that this was the thing that would finally humble Cardassia, and if it's able to rebuild, which it will with the Federation help, it will be a kinder, gentler uh, Cardassia. And here we have the Federation is not able to provide. Again, this is another scene. This is another scenario where there would be dozens of Federation ships on this planet helping everybody acclimate and getting them used to them and teaching them how to farm their new planet and how to do this and how to not be evil, frankly. But there is only so much that Janeway can do. Janeway is still willing to do everything that she can to get these people a planet. They do spend so much time and effort Getting them that ending. Um
1: Yeah, I, I think that's all right. And one of the things that I like about this episode so much is that it doesn't shy away from making the aliens or the Vodwar out to be responsible for their own problems. Mm. I, I think that you know, because We'll talk about seven of nine in a minute, but the the because there is some stuff to talk about with her in this episode because this she's got a pretty prominent part in this episode and the next one um but her decision to uh, awaken yeah. the first Vaadwar person that she sees is of course what precipitates this entire thing and there's a lot going on here, of course. I mean, Janeway is very eager to use their underspace, these tunnels that they used to, yeah. they say, um, have trade amongst the Delta Quadrant. But in reality, they were using them to uh, invade everyone else and, and and take control of their resources. But it is it is interesting to me that, that Janeway kind of said, she uses that opportunity to her advantage. But, you know, she criticizes Seven of Nine for awakening the first member of the alien species in Stasis but then she goes along with the idea to wake up a bunch of them, and I get it. Like, this is Star Trek, and you engage with you know other cultures in good faith, and, yeah. and Janeway is not necessarily going to believe that they are going to be like space Nazis.
0: And um, I do think that part of it is that she's more upset at Seven of Nine doing it immediately. Like, eventually, yes, they were going to start waking people up, but Janeway is still in the, we need to check... We need to scan everything. We need to make sure there's no weapon systems. We need to make sure that this is actually the process to revive them. We need, you know, there's some things that we need to double and triple check before we do this because I'm Janeway and I am at times careful about this thing. And Seven of Nine, meanwhile, says, oh, wow, a person, awaken. I mean, I part of me gets the sense that that is more what she is chastising Seven of Nine for, that over-eagerness, that... that not waiting until the captain gives the say-so. Of course. Yeah. And in a way, uh, and we've seen this in the series a lot of times, Janeway is the one who, it is her role to take that ultimate responsibility. Right now, the ultimate responsibility for awakening these people and any fallout is on seven of nines head and as somebody who is not the captain she is not quite prepared to deal with this janeway is somebody who if she'd given the go-ahead it would be on her and she has made the decision and she has looked at it in the way that she is supposed to have looked at it and if she makes the right or wrong decision she's still the one that we say is has the authority to make that
1: yeah for sure and i mean i i think a lot of what is going on specifically this weekend you know in in the next episode um with seven of nine is seven of nine has been on the ship for like two and a half years at this point she's kind of getting into her advanced age right like this is a this is an episode where seven of nine is taught the importance of the prime directive right and the, the why the prime directive exists, the unintended consequences that can arise when things happen. This is why we have the prime directive. Okay, Seven of Nine has learned her lesson, and then of course, in in one small step, Janeway is trying to to teach her the the beauty and and uh, you know the beauty of of, of exploration. For instance, yeah. But I I mean, it's so interesting to me that that we're talking so much about all of these different elements of Dragon's Teeth, but. I don't know. There's something about this episode that just works. Like a lot of it is so unremarkable as we've said, but there is a lot going on. And I think this is, you know, in in a series that so often doesn't do these types of episodes very well, this kind of kitchen sink approach to its plotting really works because I think that you really see that in this episode where none of the elements are that deeply thought out. But there are just enough of them and they all gel together pretty well that even though the, the ending of this episode is perhaps a little disappointing, mm. it just kind of ends because it's 44 minutes yeah. in and the show needs to go off the air. Uh, it's fine. Like I think it, it, it all hangs together pretty well to me.
0: Well, this is the rare episode of Voyager that's a lot more interesting to talk about than it is to watch. Like, I felt myself genuinely bored with a lot of this episode, but I am finding a lot of meaty and weighty themes to get from this, and a lot of different character notes and all of these things, and it's resonating with all these earlier episodes. I don't know if that necessarily means that a rewatch would be better for me, but it may not be the case, but... I, yeah, that that is the weird side effect of having three people, right? Like, they're all just throwing stuff to the wall, and a bunch of it is going to hit because yeah. these are people who know their their elements of Voyager, right? Like, it's not like we are dealing with just somebody off the street this time.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think maybe the, the last thing to, to briefly touch on before we move on to, to one small step is... That, you know, this other alien race, the Terre, which is kind of holding Voyager hostage and this idea that um, they're they're going to bombard Voyager and Voyager has to find allies where they can. You know, I think it's very smart on the episode's part to to have some of the Vaadwar use Voyager's aloneness yeah. to its advantage or to their advantage and to kind of like put Voyager into a corner. But once again, of course, Voyager gets out of it because this is a Star Trek show and Voyager is the, the main ship of the series. I don't know. It's just like, again, nothing about this is that revelatory, but it's just nice to see Voyager do a well-executed
0: Star Trek. Yeah, I think I'm with that. I guess I'm feeling better about it now. You know, again, this is one, uh, talking about it was very interesting. All right.
1: So does that mean that you're going to find one small step to be more aggravating than you initially ah! All right, well, let's move on to one small step. But before we do that, just want to take a quick opportunity to let you all know, yes, you listening to this in the car, on the treadmill, walking the dog, at your desk, wishing you were at home, whatever you're doing, to go to patreon.com slash That is a place that you can donate money to this podcast each and every month. If you give us $5 a month or more, you will get access to all of our patron specials. These are special podcast episodes for patrons only at a $5 a month level. There's like, I don't know, 30 of them now or something. Uh, so if you are wanting more Trek about, that is the way to get it. Go to patreon.com slash show and give now. All right, let's talk about one small step. And I think the way that I want to get into this conversation is that Voyager is the Star Trek series that is most interested in the present day. Mm. And... I think this is something that is overlooked by a lot of people. You know, we have episodes like this, which is very focused on the early days of, you know, sort of the Mars exploration in the 2030s. We have episodes like 1159. We even have episodes like Future's End from the third season. There's another episode, uh, I think this season or next season, that deals with um, another Mars probe. And I think it's very interesting. and It almost feels in a weird way like a testing ground for star trek enterprise
0: maybe um but it makes a lot of sense that they would be really into the present because this was 1999 ish and that was you know the turn of the millennium again that was something that 1159 explicitly dealt with this is a time when we really were considering our place and our technological future and what the future was going to be like and in it, much much more so in a way that than we were doing when, say, next generation came out, and so to consider there to consider the place of the world and how it is going to eventually lead to the federation um d s nine was obviously interested in some of the mechanics of that, but this is interested in seeing the continuity between now and then in a way, there is a lot because a lot of the present stuff is based on that explorative spirit still in us today, and we are going to go out into space someday.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, because, and this is something that I actually really like about the show a lot, that it has characters like Tom Paris who are obsessed with, um, you know, sort of like the mid-20th century American or Western culture, and, you know, TNG very famously is is very obsessed with, like, classical music and Shakespeare and all that kind of stuff. And and DS nine doesn't really have that kind of thing. I think the most we kind of get is kind of the Vic Fontaine stuff, later baseball. on. And baseball, baseball, yeah. for instance. But this series is very interested in that kind of, um, you know, that kind of contemporaneous look at American culture specifically, and I find it kind of fascinating because Star Trek had always kind of shied away from doing these kinds of things i think for a lot of reasons like on tos it just didn't work
0: very (laughs) well. what was the one episode where they went into the 1960s what was that one
1: i think there were a couple of them well there was the enterprise incident is that the one no the one with
0: the secretary in, like, the go-go boot. Oh,
1: that was the last episode of the second season. <laughs> um, I don't remember the name of it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That that backdoor pilot for the sort of, like, Gary Seven adventures with the magical cat. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh I forgot about it. <laughs> uh, Had some problems. Um, yeah, this is much more of a realistic look at that sort of thing. And I think it's it's it, it grounds Voyager. It makes it feel more more friendly in a hmm. way like these characters in a lot of ways don't feel like the sort of Roddenberry example yeah. that we had in TNG. You know TNG characters were people but they didn't necessarily feel like real people. I think the Voyager cr- crew feels a little bit more like real people.
0: I think I would agree with that again. Um the original series was written more as archetypes um Next Generation is Paragons, and DS9 is Philosophies, in a way. Um, The characters are mouthpieces for these various things, and again, Belana. even though we don't know who Belana is other than she's the chief engineer, she's half Vulcan, um, she is not representing anything other than herself, in a way. Yeah, yeah. You know, sure. Tom Paris is that... obsessed with the past, but he doesn't represent nostalgia.
1: Right. Well, maybe. I don't know. I think he's a little nostalgic. No, no, but I, no, but I mean,
0: he's not a symbol of nostalgia. He is a nostalgic person. Oh, yeah. yeah no, I, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that.
1: But yeah, I think that like, what, what is so striking about this episode in particular is that, you know, in the same way that Voyager is very kind of interested in looking at, at where you know, how did we get to the Federation? Um, it's also lo- interested in looking at it from a backwards point of view, right? Like, yes, this episode starts out in 2032, and then it has the, the sort of like... They're not even really flashbacks necessarily because none of the characters are um, actually yeah. experiencing this or remembering this. I don't... I'm sure there's a filmic term for it, but I, I actually don't know what it is. Well, it's it's um, very similar but, to
0: 1159 in that way.
1: It is, yeah, for sure. It feels more like... I don't know it's it's two it's two stories happening simultaneously in different times but, and I think that's an interesting technique in general and yeah. it also really is fascinating to me because this is all grounded into a discussion of 7 of 9 having to kind of like discover the joys of exploration and why is exploration yeah. important and really grounds it in this here's a man who Died, you know, for 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 exploration purposes, and Seven of Nine is really moved by that. And I think to the the funeral scene on the bridge at the end of the episode, and how yeah. Voyager, in a lot of ways, feels very grounded in what has come before, uh, more than any of the other Star Trek shows.
0: Yeah, I mean, th- there is. A lot of this episode is Seven finally comprehending stuff she already knew, Uh, because she kind of understands again as a Borg drone, she—in the—like, for example, the Omega Directive, she talks about how many Borg died studying this thing, and— she seems to think of that as worthwhile. It was an acceptable sacrifice because the reward of this was so great. And she understands completely that as a calculation. But she doesn't understand yet at this point why would somebody willingly make this sacrifice when it is not necessarily uh, something you have to do. Like for pure exploration doesn't seem a practical thing to her. And by the end of the episode, she is able to recognize that drive and that curiosity.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because I think, you know, what this episode indicates to me is that Seven of Nine has never really thought about why she's on Voyager and why Voyager exists. You know, she yeah. is a Borg, she is coming out of this, and she is kind of becoming her own person, but in a lot of ways she has never really questioned uh, why anybody is yeah. doing what they're doing. this is... And... Well, this episode is is her finally coming to terms with that, with which finally... Coming to another one of their heads, you know, Janeway and Seven of yeah. Nine, as they so often do, that they have these disagreements, and Janeway um, is stubborn, and Seven of Nine essentially calls her an idiot, and... uh <laughs> It, it's, it makes for riveting television because Kate Mulgrew and, and Jerry Ryan have great chemistry together. But it also really comes across from a very real place where I like seeing Seven of Nine grow. I like seeing her learn. Yeah. I like seeing her change. And that moment towards the end of One Small Step when she puts her comm badge on the, the corpse of yeah. uh, John Kelly – that's a very, very moving moment, and I was not expecting to be as moved by that as I was. No,
0: I mean, it's almost along the lines—it's uh, it, not quite the same as Data at Tasha Yar's, Yar's funeral, but it is an understanding of what death means from a slightly different perspective, and one makes that make sense to a character who views the world very differently, where they actually managed to click on something very fundamentally human that they didn't necessarily think they would— I mean, one of the things that this episode is making it clear is that we have seen the development of Seven of Nine's empathy very subtly over the past couple of seasons. I mean, what I am specifically thinking about is how many times have we seen her recently talking to a character about their their problems, not even hers, but their problems, and Seven of Nine basically says, well, I left the Borg and it was difficult, but I adapted, and – she says that not necessarily in a cold way, but in a way to say, like, listen, you have challenges, but you're a survivor. You'll figure it out. You will – you have the resources in order to survive. You have the support. You will be able to get through this. And I don't know. that that That's – I think, you know, for a lot of characters, that does turn out to be the, the key for them. And it's also a way that she understands her own changes, too, in, in a way that I really yeah, like. Yeah,
1: well- Yeah, I agree because I I think that that, you know what what that makes me think is that Seven of Nine starts out as a as a person who views pretty much everything transactionally, Mm. right? Like she's viewing relationships as transactional, she's she's viewing what she's doing in terms of her own life as transactional. And and what this episode in particular and what I think even in, in you know the previous episode, in other episodes that we have seen, is that she's learning I think she's discovering or learning the intangible nature of being human as well as the transactional nature. Like, yeah, like she's, she's, you know, flabbergasted when Janeway says, well, we just need to see it with our own eyes. You know, we, we, you know, if Starfleet was super interested in exploration as a a goal in and of itself, we would have just built, you know, hundreds of probes and sent them out into the galaxy. But that's not the sole point of that. Yeah. And, and she gets it by the end of the episode.
0: Because building hunt- building all these probes and sending them out is not that different from what Borg life was like. Yes, as a Borg drone is an extraordinarily sophisticated and complicated probe, but to the Borg, that's about all it is. You feel the same way about losing a drone that you do a probe. Like, oh, it it, it sucks that we lost that piece of equipment. Can we replace it? What's it going to take for that? But you're thinking just in terms of logistics. And... It doesn't really matter whether another drone or you sees something for themselves because the entire collective gets it. As long as it enters the collective's consciousness, that's enough. And this is another facet of being an individuality that you personally saw it instead of just accessing the same resources that everybody else might have.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I mean, they, you know, well, we get to the 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 flyer right with Chakotay and Paris and Seven of Nine, and they get into this situation because Chakotay really wants yeah. to get the the Aries four capsule, and and that's why they get stuck. And Seven of Nine is is very angry with him. I mean, there's that scene where she is belligerent and 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 she is being insubordinate as well. And you know, Chakotay calls her out on it, but he also says, "Okay, you got it out of your system now. Control yourself." and, and- she ends the episode in exactly the same place that Chakotay was where she's risking the Delta flyer again for downloading the logs and for bringing the body over. And I find that interesting for two reasons. Of course, number one is that she's realizing that this exploration is important in and Mm. of itself. And this is an important part of, of, you know, earth's history of Starfleet's history of the Federation's history. And this is this could be, you know, once Voyager finally gets back to the Alpha Quadrant, yeah. these logs are going to be a gold mine for for historians and other people. And the other part of it too, of course, is that when she decides to bring the body back, that is very important yeah. because that is her going that is her evolving past the Borg's idea of of a corpse as just something you get rid of. It's or not anything strip for parts. She's yeah, or Striff parts like she is honoring it and she is getting the point of that. And you also get at the very end of the episode when the last thing she says to him is Yankees and six yeah. teams. you know, like she under she's she's gotten a relationship with this guy which I find very very interesting and in moving. Yeah,
0: uh 7 of 9 2 years ago would have said what's the point of taking him on the ship to to jettison him out, you know. All uh, we can say that if we really need to say a speech, we can say it, but recognizing the honor that is due to him. He's not just a probe that was probe that was defective. He was a person with hopes and dreams and fears and uh, aspirations, and he found beauty in this. He found meaning in this. He was brave, and he made this sacrifice, and she's finally recognizing that, and also recognizing that, I think, in the people around her, because everybody else is that same thing. That is a... You know, one of the ways Voyager talks about the past is to say, here are certain values that are of the past that have evolved into the values that we as the Federation have. And that willingness to risk everything for scientific progress to get humanity that much better is something that deserves major honors.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's really what it comes down to. And that's really what it comes down to, I think, for, for Star Trek as a whole is that, you know, at some point, and we are certainly not ready to do it yet, but I think we're going to have to grapple with what is the point of Star Trek in general. Mm. And I think this episode is, is kind of a key text, funnily enough, for that. I mean, this is an episode that no one talks about. I really didn't even remember the, yeah, yeah. that it existed. But it's very, very humanistic, and it's very focused on, you know, what what makes this important. What what yeah. makes our lives meaningful? And I think that's really what it comes down to: is that Seven of Nine is is discovering how to make her own life meaningful.
0: Yeah. Again, this is we we've talked a little bit about, but humanity doesn't have a religious tradition in the Star Trek universe. There is no Stovacor for the Federation for Starfleet, and.
1: I, I think in an interesting way, humanity is one of the only alien species in mm. Star Trek or in the Federation that, that doesn't have an explicit religious tradition in a weird no, way. No, no. Like the Vulcans do, the Klingons do. You know what I mean? Sure, like yeah. It's, it's,
0: yeah. I mean, we, we, we don't even have a... Like Babylon 5 is, is, is an example of a show that has you know, still believes that the Earth religious traditions will continue at some form, and it's, you know, a show that occasionally has, you know, a Catholic priest running around and things like that, but um, we have DS9, if if there had been any Earth-based religious traditions, it would have appeared in DS9 at some point, because that's the perfect time to do it, you're going into everybody else's spiritual traditions, so humanity is very notable for its absence there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't, I mean, I'm sure someone's going to correct me, but I I can't think of a time. Probably,
0: uh, maybe offhand, I mean, I feel like the original series, you know, mentions God in a One Nation Under God type of sense. Um, Maybe there's a vague deism kind of thing going on there, but it's, again, it's very, it's not like we ever see Kirk talking about going to church.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. I I think the one series that it might it it probably has the most uh chance of appearing in is Enterprise because yeah. it is the most contemporaneous of all the Star Trek series because it only takes place about 150 years in the future, but we will have to see yeah. if there is any mention of religion in that show. I do not remember. So I guess the last thing to to briefly touch on because we haven't really touched on on John Kelly as a person as a character. I mean, certainly he's not the the point of the episode, but I- I'm wondering what you make of him because he does face death very bravely, and he is making these logs to the end, and that is also a key part of the episode. That seven is very um, is very taken by the fact that he kept making these
0: logs to the very end. Yeah, I mean, it's not that different. It, you know, this is if you read the right stuff, he's a character out of there, but that's not to say that that's not how people. Who do this job are? I mean, again, it it it, it, it's to be the kind of person to go into a spacecraft and go into the most hazardous environment that we ever know requires like so much bravery and boldness. And you know, we like to. It's nice to see heroes that are not heroes because they kill a lot of people, but because they are dedicated towards their craft, because they are. Willing to face death for what they do because they are willing to, again, benefit humanity in any tiny way that they can, even if they know they're not going to get out of it. And I don't know. It's it, it. It makes sense that you know Paris talks about how he was and Chakotay talk about how they admired hearing stories about them when they were young because that is the kind of person who somebody in the Federation would have as a role model.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it feels very important right now (laughs) because of the time that we live in. But that's another thing. That's another topic of conversation for another day. All right. Well, I think we'll call it an episode. If you have any thoughts on Dragon's Teeth or One Small Step, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. As I said earlier, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. That is where you can go to give us a little bit of your hard-earned money. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Truck About Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcast review for TruckAbout About. Because Richard, what is it?
0: The worst way to get your friends to hate us. Very good. That is true. I think.
1: All right. Next week we're going to be talking about the Voyager conspiracy mm. and Pathfinder.